Hey, mujeres. My name is Gladys Godinez, host of the Courageous Mujer podcast. This season, me siento muy excited to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month by focusing on our cultura, our identity, and our accomplishments by getting to know six wonderful Latinas throughout the state. Courageous Mujer Podcast celebrates Hispanic Heritage Month is sponsored by Humanities Nebraska, Dr. Katie Whites, and United by Culture Media, an affiliate of the Lexington Community Foundation. We know that we're just scratching the surface and we will continue to embrace, support, and celebrate each and every single one of you. From Scotts Bluff to Lincoln y desde North Platte a Omaha. Feliz mes de la herencia hispana. Bienvenidos, everyone. My name is Gladys Godinez, and I am your host with Courageous Mujer Podcast. I am so excited, beyond excited, to have Dr. Athena Ramos here with me today. Bienvenida, Dr. Athena Ramos. Thank you so much, Gladys. I'm so happy to be here with you as well. Very excited. I love the title, Courageous Mujer. Yes. Well, we have a stateful of Courageous Mujeres, so we're very excited to be able to highlight our stories, to be able to tell individuals who we are. You know, sometimes our stories are very much stereotypical. So it's about time we start introducing <laughs> ourselves, you know, and start telling people, hey, um, we're very much here and we're very much part of our communities and making some strides as Courageous Mujeres. So I'm first going to start, if that's okay with y'all, I'll start with thanking our sponsors, Humanities Nebraska, give a big shout out to them. They were able to give us a lot of the podcast uh, equipment, as well as Dr. Katie Whites. Honestly, Dr. Katie Whites was the one that said, Gladys, come to Omaha. And after talking to her, our biggest listeners in the state of Nebraska are from Omaha. So shout out to Omaha. I just want to dig in and just like pick your brain despacito, you know, because you have so much knowledge <laughs> <laughs> and there's so much to learn from you. But at this moment, I'm going to withhold from a million questions and truly dig in and getting to know you. I think it's really cool to see you do so many awesome things, not only here in our state, but other states throughout the heartland and the United States. Um, I think it's really important to get to know us a little bit. So then our little ones, you know, little Athena can have somebody to look up to. So will you dig into your past? Let us know a little bit about your roots. Where from? Were you born in Nebraska? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I am a lifelong Nebraskan. I was born and raised in, uh, well, born in Papillion, raised in Bellevue. Um, my family came to Nebraska because my dad was in the Air Force and he got stationed at Offutt. Um, I have three other siblings. They got the whole military brat experience of moving all across the country, across the world. And by the time I came around, I was the baby. I got Bellevue. <laughs> <laughs> my father had actually uh, got stationed here and he ended up retiring here and then they had me. Um, so I didn't have that real global experience of living all over. Um, I, I really just lived here in Nebraska. My father is from Puerto Rico. My mother is from Germany. So I always introduce myself as a German Rican born in Nebraska. I've only met one other German Rican, and he definitely wasn't born in Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> so both of my parents were immigrants to the United States. Uh, my father came when he was a teenager. They moved to New York. As you can imagine, in the, the 1950s, a lot of the Puerto Rican families were leaving the island. They were going to New York. Uh, and that was the same story for 
for my family. Um, they were coming one by one, you know, one sibling at a time to come to New York as my grandmother was able to earn enough money to send for one at a time to come to New York. My father ended up joining the military at the age of 17. He actually forged my grandmother's signature to allow him to join the military before he was of age. Um, but then he, he spent uh, 26 years in the military and that's how he actually met my mother. He met her in Germany because he had been stationed in Germany and brought her to the United States um, as well. So both of them were uh, were speaking other languages. My father obviously spoke Spanish. My mother obviously spoke German. Neither of them knew a whole lot of English, but I guess they spoke the language of love. <laughs> yes, love it. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, my family, I guess I'm blessed to have immigrant parents because I feel like they've given me so much. Um, they've given me uh, like a sense of, of persistence, of determination, you know, of trying to make it through whatever is thrown your way. You come to a brand new place. You don't know anybody. You figure it out. Right. You don't know the language. Well, you figure out how to communicate with people. And so it's always a constant. It's always been a constant process of of trying to figure things out. And I think the same is true for my own life. Uh, you know, coming from that very diverse background of, of a German mother and a Puerto Rican father and growing up in Nebraska uh, in the 1980s. Uh, I put my age out there. Out. <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell anyone. I know, right? Um <laughs> There wasn't a lot of, of like Latinos, I would say, in my high school or in my school career. Um, there weren't that many families. I remember thinking about high school. And if I remember correctly, there were four of us in my graduating class. And I say us because I, I guess I more strongly identify with my with my Puerto Rican side, with my Latina side. Um, I've had, you know, my father took great pride in making sure that I understood where he came from, that I knew our language, that I knew our culture, that I just knew how to be a Puerto Rican, a Puerto Rican woman. And that was one of the things that he really enjoyed. And, and he made sure that we went back to the island every year. He would take me back to meet my family, to understand our roots, because that was something that he was very proud of. And it's something that I'm very proud of to be able to pass along to my own family is that knowledge of, of where we came from. And I feel like oftentimes, you know, um, when you grow up in the United States, there's a tendency to kind of lose some of that history, to to lose some of that richness um, that that our culture brings to us. So I try to remember that, and I I've tried to um, really identify with that and portray that in in everything that I do. And you see it, you know. And now we'll get to your career here soon enough because yeah. I know it's a big chunk of you know what you're currently doing. But if I can just go back, let's give a shout out to your yeah. dad and your mom. What are their names? Um, my my dad is Angel, and my mother is Katharina. Awesome, beautiful. And mm -hmm. then they were here in in Nebraska, Bellevue Papillion. And you you mentioned a little bit about your high school experience. I'm in, I'm interested about your elementary experience. And the reason why here's where I'm going. Yeah. My family's also mixed, so my little kids are Afro Latinos. Chris is black, and I'm Guatemalan. Mm -hmm. um, so their experience is different than a lot of other people's experience. So what was your experience as a little kid seeing these two very beautiful cultures come together, you being part of that? Any, any experiences that you want to share in regards to your elementary and middle school ages? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question, Gladys, um, because as a little girl, I don't think I realized how what a rich 
background that I came from. I don't think it was until high school that I actually realized it. And it was a funny reason why I realized it. Um, I was watching, you know, those four other kids who were getting invited to a Latino leadership conference or, you know, Latino student success day at the university or all these different things. And I'm like, how come I didn't get an invite? What happened to me? And so I went to the counselor's office and I'm like, hey, you know, what's up? How come I don't get an invite? I'm doing well in school. I'm getting good grades. Like what's going on? And they went back through the record. And they're like, you're Hispanic. You're Latina. Oh. The reason why my parents had registered me for school as white, because when they came in the 1950s, it wasn't uh, it wasn't cool to be anything but white. Right. You had to speak English and you had to acculturate. Right. Not even right. acculturate, assimilate. Let me put it out there like that. Um, and so it was a really different time. And so for them to register me as white was an was in their own minds, I think, an opportunity um, for them to give me a leg up in the world. But I didn't see it that way. <laughs> I wanted to be I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to go to those Latino student conferences and really be more a part of that culture, even though I had it growing up, like with my father and like I was telling you and, and traveling yeah. to Rico and with our family and so forth. Um, I didn't have that same experience in the social circle of my own friends and in my own like high school experience. But that's how it came to light. <laughs> how I figured it out. I'm like, oh, OK, that. That makes sense. That makes sense. But once we figured it out, then I'm like, no, let's let's correct that box. Yeah. This is where I should be. Yeah. And as a high school student, that's big too, you know, getting to understand what's happening with your family, why they chose to put, uh, you know, you on as a, a white individual and then you digging in a little bit deeper and figuring that out. That's huge for a 17, 15, 18 exactly. year old. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it did create some challenges, you know, growing up because I was you know, you can look at me, people will probably, you know, if they look at me and don't know me, they may assume, well, she's just another white girl from Nebraska. Um, but then, you know, so in one way, like I can pass as white, and, but I'm not really white enough. And then I'm not really Latina enough. And right. so I always had this identity struggle of like, where do I really belong? And so it was a conscious decision on my part to say, you know what, this is where I belong. And this is who I am. And this is who I'm going to be. So I wonder <laughs> where we're we're tipping into high school, we're tipping into college. In college, is that where you found that out? Because I mean, in high school, I don't know if I would have had the energy to seek that identity out that much. I'm, I'm just wondering, where yeah. did you figure out that identity? Okay, Aki, this is where I fit. This is where I belong. Because that those pressures that you mentioned, I'm not white enough. I'm not brown enough. Mm -hmm. Those are very real for a lot of our young Latinos and still to this day, adults. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're totally right. I would say in high school, in the last couple of years of high school, like junior, senior year, that's where I really felt like I needed to say, you know, this is who I am. But college totally solidified that. <laughs> I got involved with ALAS at UNO. I went to UNO, uh, which is the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And I got involved with a student organization called ALAS, the Association of Latino American Students. And for me, that was like, a homecoming because it was the first time in my life that I had so many peers who were living the same experience as me. Um, a group, there must have been at least 30 to 40 of us Latino students at that time who were, who were brand new. 
you know, to the university. We were kind of learning the ropes together and it was so supportive. It was an organization that was so supportive um, and really helped me to to grow as an individual and also to grow, I think, as as a leader. I remember um, I think it was the second year of college for me um, and we did the uh, grassroots leadership development program or the collegiate leadership development program, which is based out of the U.S. Hispanic Leadership Institute in Chicago. And so we were meeting with uh, university staff and leaders, and we were talking about, you know, the why things are structured the way they are and who's in charge of what and wh- how policies are made and so forth. And uh, it was one of the most amazing experiences, I think, that transformational, let's put it that way, right. experiences for me um, to be part of that group. Those people that I went to school with that were part of ALAS are still, I would say, people that I, I'm happy to call my friends even today. Um, they're people who I see in leadership positions all across the city uh, here in Omaha, you know, and so uh, it's like we've grown up together. Um, mm-hmm. Our first experience going to the U.S. Hispanic Leadership Institute conference in Chicago was again like this amazing time for me. I remember it was uh 2001 or 2002. <laughs> Forgive me on the dates. You know, that was a long time well, ago. Let's not date us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I got to meet President Clinton at that event. It was totally, totally amazing. And and it really made me love politics to love uh, the experience uh, of being in that position and to have access to people who were in power and who could make real changes in our life. So not only did I get to meet the president of the United States, but I got to learn a lot more about organized labor and unions and the power of unions and how they've been able to help our people. And it was really tremendous, tremendous. OMG. (laughs) <laughs> we were at the same conference at the same time. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I cannot believe this. It, it was the same. Co- we did it here in Lexington. We did it with our city leadership. So mm-hmm. I was a high school student and then in college with the Hispanic Student Association. I also went to uh, the Hispanic Leadership Institute out of Chicago. So it's really interesting that we were in the same spaces yeah. <laughs> the same time. Never knew it. Never knew it. Pero el movimiento, right? The mm-hmm. moment where you sit with thousands of other Latinos that are the same age, that are the same, you know, very much leader uh, or want to be leaders. Mm-hmm. And just ha- you just have, I don't know, I felt moved and shaken, you know, like, yeah, to you the can core. do. Yes, yes. <laughs> so transformational 100%. And I'll mm-hmm. make sure we put it in the comments in regards to that conference because we encourage, I mean, just by our, t- our testimonials, <laughs> I want to encourage all teachers and counselors to be able to check out this conference because it's really powerful and mm-hmm. can really develop a young Latino, Latina, Latinx individual to be able to just grow into their own and find, you know, community. Because that's exactly. really what it felt like. Yeah, yeah. And I remember like just walking down that huge hallway in the convention center and, you know, a super large city in the U.S. And here we are, thousands upon thousands of us. Yes. walking, down. And we're not we're you know, we're we're there for leadership opportunities, which yes. was incredible to meet 
um, so many other people to see the the academic opportunities with all the schools that were coming for college fairs, for all the companies that were coming for the job fair, and all of us who were coming to build support and build our own social networks. Yes. Oh, so beautiful. Ah, look at us in college <laughs> growing up together in different campuses. <laughs> so you you and know what did you graduate with, your bachelor's? Um, sure. Yeah, I finished uh, my bachelor's degree at UNO in 2002 in public administration. Yeah. Awesome. I actually like when I started college, I thought, oh, I want to be a high school teacher. And then I had some opportunity, like all of us, we all work <laughs> a bunch of different jobs to try to make ends meet. And so I had some experiences, you know, working uh, in the schools, you know, kind of after school and doing um, after school tutoring and, and programming and that sort of thing, which I liked. But I realized maybe high school teacher isn't quite where I want to land. And so I thought about nonprofit. I thought about government at that time because of my love for politics and policy. Thought, oh, public administration would probably be a good a good way to go. Yes. And you stay close to home. Any reason why you stayed close to home? <laughs> 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 I, uh, I um, actually had no, I think probably like many other kids in Nebraska, when you're in high school, you're thinking of any opportunity that you can to get away from home and to get out of Nebraska. And I was in the same boat. Um, I actually had applied to the military academies and I had received appointments to West Point, the Merchant Marine Academy. Uh, the Coast Guard Academy and the Naval Academy. Wow. And so I had chose to go to the Naval Academy. But funny thing is, I was hanging out the night before I leave for the Naval Academy with my friends, you know, we're kind of playing. And at the time I was taking some karate classes. So I was showing off my karate skills and I did a kick without stretching. <laughs> and I tore my ACL that night in my knee. No. Sure did. Um, so I took off the next morning on crutches to go to the Naval Academy. And they're like, yeah, no, you gotta go. <laughs> you gotta go home. Um, so that was the beginning of July. And at that point, I had turned down all of my scholarships and for other schools. So I turned down all my offers and I really didn't have a backup plan because, you know, at 17 years old, who's thinking of a plan B? I mean, you're, you're thinking you can take on the world and you're going straight ahead as fast as you can. Um, and so uh, I ended up at home with nothing really. And so, uh, you know, UNO was the only thing that I could do at that point in time. Um, so I made that quick application to go to UNO, but for me, it turned out to be a really great, great opportunity. As I mentioned with, um, with Alas, with, with the group that I was a part of, I, you know, did really great at my classes. I really enjoyed them. I love that UNO was so connected with neighborhoods and with communities all across the city, which I think is one of the really great strengths of, of UNO. I love their new logo, uh, not logo, their motto, you know, that our campus is the community, like welcome to our campus, meaning welcome to Omaha, because they do all work throughout the community. Um, so it didn't, turn, you know, at first I was kind of dreading it, um, but it turned out to be a really, really great powerful, you know, learning experience for me. So I'm glad, you know, the Naval Academy, although it would have been really awesome, I could have been an ocean engineer, which was the plan to be an engineer. Um, but, you know, I didn't turn out so bad after all, you know. 
<laughs> you sure didn't. I mean, what a story though. That ACL. That <laughs> that's a story. Right. <laughs> yes. So then you graduated from you know from UNO. You could have, I'm guessing, still attempted your dream, but you stayed. What happened? <laughs> Well, I did. I attempted. <laughs> I, I never got a medical waiver to go back. Oh, That was what happened with the Naval Academy, which is okay, you know, because there's been a lot of things that have happened in these past 20 years that maybe I wouldn't have felt so good about, you know, and being in that position. Um, so I'm pretty glad to be where I'm at. I ended up finishing my my bachelor's degree at UNO. And because I had that love for organizing and for neighborhoods and for social action, I went back immediately and did a master's program in urban studies and community and economic development. And what is that? I mean, that's a lot. You just gave us a lot for people that don't understand, you know, okay, first you went, you graduated. Yeah, you did four years, you know, and you worked through it because you mentioned you were working through it too. So now you're in your master's and you're, you're developing a a career that you're already seeing a pathway for where you're headed. Um, How did you choose your program? And then how did you pay for your program? Okay. Choosing my program was easy um, for me because um, the urban studies program is also housed in the same college as public administration. So for me, I had known many of the professors who were the leaders of the urban studies program. I had taken classes with them before. I knew of their work in these neighborhoods and in these communities. So it was a relatively easy choice. I'm like, yeah, that's that's what I want to do. I want to continue doing that kind of thing. I remember we were working in some North Omaha neighborhoods. We were uh, working with neighborhood associations. We were doing like taking stock of the quality of housing and how do you improve the quality of housing, like walking, you know, house by house by house and looking for, you know, um, actual physical improvements that could be made to uh, these different houses. I mean, it was just some really, really cool things that we were doing. And I wanted to do more of that. And I thought that the urban studies program was the perfect way to be able to do that and to continue that work. I've always had a real passion for community, a passion for um, uh, cities and how cities develop. And and for me, this was a a perfect match. Mm -hmm. Paying for the program. Now that I've got really lucky um, because my father was a veteran. He was in the military, and so he had some education benefits. And that's how I was able to complete my undergraduate program was because of his military benefits. Uh, if we had to depend on uh, like our family income to do that, I don't know about all that. Like I had to really go out there and find some scholarship money, uh, which I did have some of that. But as I mentioned, I had turned down a lot of those because my plan was to go to the Naval Academy. Um, But for the master's program, uh, I was also able to continue using some of his benefits um, because I think I had like another year left of Mm -hmm. of his benefits. So that paid for part of it. And then uh, for the other part, I took uh, uh, a student worker position, a fellowship with um, some of the faculty. And uh, didn't intern. It's basically like a paid internship um, with a community organization. So I was working uh, as an intern in family housing advisory services. And I'm guessing you get those. Again, we're just digging in to make it just graspable or realistic for our young young ladies that are listening. Um, so when you get those internships, 
I know that for sure for me is my community and my network. Was it your network that was able to get you those uh, internships within your, you know, with your master's? Yeah, it was the faculty that I was connected with. So I had made some really good relationships with some of the core faculty um, and and they recommended that I apply for this program. And I did. And um, voila, I, I had a little bit of an internship with them. Yeah, it's yeah, so important, that, you know. It's totally, re- totally important. And I think that's an uh, an unrecognized resource is oftentimes, you know, like all young people, they come to college and they think that they've got to pay for it all themselves. But well, now I can speak as a faculty member. We often have funding that we can provide or we can guide people to different paid opportunities uh, that we know about. And you just got to ask because sometimes right. we, we just don't know that you don't know. Right. Right. And we don't know a lot, you know, and it's just those baby steps of asking or asking for help. And it's hard, you know, our ego, our humbleness, our feeling like we don't belong or we don't have the right answers. I think that has all been a really hard experience for a lot of first generation students. So it is that's why I ask those questions, because I want to make sure that there can be another Dr. Athena Ramos, you know, and then there can be another young Latina listening and saying, okay, so how does she do it? And how can I do it? And how can we do it together? And how can we lift others up as well? So awesome. You you graduated with your master's. Yep. We have a doctor right in front of your name. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more. What happened after you graduated? Oh gosh. Well, you know, I thought urban studies would be more about city planning Uh, And which I thought would be super cool. And it did. The program was about things like that. Um, But the reality in the time of when I graduated with that in 2004, Omaha was a different place. There weren't a lot of job opportunities for urban planners or people in that kind of field. Um, And so... Uh, I went to work at a community organization. Actually, I started working uh, at the Chicano Awareness Center, which is now the Latino Center of the Midlands. Uh, Even before I graduated with with my undergraduate degree, I was already there um, working um, because I needed an opportunity. And they said, hey, you know, why don't you come on over? We've heard about some of the work that you've done with, you know, some political organizing. So I went. I'm a broke college student, right? I need money. I'm pretty much game to do almost anything. So they get to telling me about all the programs that they have at the the center. They talked about how they had social service programs for older adults, programs to help people find jobs and find housing. They had education program with counselors in the high schools to talk to young people about the importance of higher education. They go through all their programs and then they get to this program about tobacco. (laughs) <laughs> like tobacco, like talking to people about not smoking. He's like, yeah, exactly. That, 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 that's what we'd like you to do. And I, I thought for a moment, okay, well, I, I can do this. Yes, I can do this. Um, and so I told him, um, yeah, I'll take the job. And it gave me a great opportunity to work with the Latino community in Omaha to learn more uh, and really be engaged in the South Omaha, like the geographic community of South Omaha. And it gave me an opportunity to work with young people and families about substance abuse prevention. So talking not only about smoking prevention, um, but also about other drugs and so forth. And it was like a door opening for me, though, at that point. Um, Being at the Latino Center was 
again, like a transformational experience because never have I been in an organization where pretty much everybody is Hispanic or Latino that we're working for the Hispanic or Latino community. And that everything we do is really centered around that. I would have had no, like I had no interest um, at that point in my life to ever go into a health sciences career ever. (laughs) Like it never crossed my mind ever. Um, But working with uh, tobacco prevention, I learned that tobacco is a really political issue. And that's what really got Mm. me going. I was really jazzed about the politics behind tobacco prevention and control. So figuring out ways to change some of the laws related with tobacco. One of the first ones that I got to work on was putting tobacco products behind the counter and out of the reach of kids. Because if you think back to the early 2000s, you could still go to a store pick up, literally pick up a pack of cigarettes and take it to the cashier to pay for it. Well, that was a real strategy on the tobacco industry's part to continue to get young people addicted uh, and to get people to continue to buy their product. And so we worked with the city council to pass an ordinance to put tobacco products behind the counter. So now that you go to a store and many of the young people who are listening probably never even realize this, you actually have to like ask somebody to get it because they're usually like behind the, the counter or they're under a lock and key. Right. And so you have to ask a clerk to go open up the, the cabinet, pull out whatever you need, and be able to purchase it at that time. So that was one of the first things that I got to work on. I got to work on trying to make Omaha a smoke-free city, Nebraska a smoke-free state. So the fact that you can't smoke in public places was one of the things that, you know, us, we as a group collectively did together. Uh, We've been working on trying to make apartments smoke-free. You get the point, right? Yeah. The idea is that it's so political. And that is why I think I really got connected um, to to this job and how tobacco prevention and control has been kind of a mainstay of my entire career. Mm -hmm. So from starting that job at the Latino Center of the Midlands all the way until now, I still do work in tobacco prevention and control. Oh, my goodness. And I'm just trying to think the local impact that you have had, you know, but not only local, like you said, is also state and how how we can start small. You know, we can start Mm -hmm. with communities, we can start with people, but then you can go to the city and then you can go to the state and make those changes. And they're grant, you know, their health hazards, not only for the Latino community, but throughout for our whole population. So absolutely. That is, that's beautiful. I think that's really awesome. I'm a non-smoker, so I can definitely say that. And <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, doctorates are not easy. I, 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 I can't even imagine, you know, you go, <laughs> just going through that whole process. To me, it, I'm saying it like that, but I, I want yeah. to be able to grasp it. I want to be able to say, Gladys, someday, maybe, you know, yeah. or, you know, whoever is listening, maybe, maybe I can go for my doctorate. What does that yeah. process look like for somebody yeah. that may want to go for it? Yeah. Okay. So I was working all this time that I'm telling you about. Um, and my father is like, you, you probably should go back to school. You know, you need to make sure that you can always have a job. And he really pushed me in the way of an MBA. and. He said, you know, if you get a business degree, you can work wherever. And he's he's pretty much right. You know, with an MBA, you can probably get a job just about anywhere. And so I went back to UNO and I did a, an, a master's in business administration. 
So that came in uh, 2008, 2009. All of this time, you know, I've always thought about doing a PhD, but it was such a challenge to try to think about. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you do a PhD, when you're starting to, to think about applying for a PhD program, they encourage you to find somebody who's doing the work that you're doing to really make sure that whatever program you're looking at is a good fit for you, that the faculty in the program are also a good fit for where you want to be, um, and to really narrow your focus. So part of the, the PhD application process is to throw out some ideas of potential research areas that you're interested in exploring, maybe in a dissertation or somewhere along the, the way. I didn't know any of this stuff, <laughs> but I just knew I wanted to I wanted to do a PhD. And so I had applied for, you know, various PhD programs at different points throughout my life. And, you know, they didn't work out. You also have to take a GRE, which is basically like a ACT or an SAT, but at a graduate level. Truthfully, I didn't really put a lot of effort into that test. I didn't understand the importance of those scores and how those are applied in in the admission process. Uh, It wasn't until I found a program at Clemson University, which is in Clemson, South Carolina, um, that was on neighborhood and Family Life, the Institute on Neighborhood and Family Life. It's a PhD program in international family and community studies. It's an interdisciplinary program that brings together public health, human rights law, uh, community development, human growth and development, anthropology, um, psychology, like all of these really cool disciplines, which for me was very attractive because Mm -hmm. I'm not one of those people who can narrow, narrow, narrow the focus. Like I like everything and I see everything as interconnected. Um, And so this program, when I saw this program come across my email, I said, voila, that's the one I'm going to apply for. And I put all of my eggs in that basket and I busted my, you know what, on that GRE in preparation for the GRE, because I said, you know, this is the program that I really, really want to get into. Um, and, and so I studied, I put a lot, you know, little by little, it wasn't like a cram session the week before you take the GRE. It was like six months of, okay, I'm going to do a little today. I'm going to do a little tomorrow. I'm going to do a little but knowing that I'm moving in the right direction. And I think the effort paid off. You know, I had people uh, read my personal statement. I had, you know, friends critique it. I'm like, give me your feedback. Like what's, yeah. what's missing? Like, what do you think about this? And, you know, fr- good friends will be honest with you. And they'll say, you know, that doesn't sound like you. That doesn't really sound good. Like maybe think about it this way. So again, it was like community effort to try to get Athena into this PhD program. And it worked. <laughs> I, I started a PhD the PhD program at Clemson uh, in 2014, and I finished the PhD program in 2017. Hey! Yay! Yes. And I do my dissertation work on a topic that is so near and dear to my heart on migrant farm worker health here in Nebraska. That's beautiful. I just, what I also heard, you said it, community, but you asked for help. And that, again, you know, I, I'm hearing a theme here. It's okay to ask for help 
and to be able to seek out that assistance. And I'm, I'm so happy you did. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> if you didn't, <laughs> those applications, you don't know if, you know, if, if it would have been accepted, if you didn't get that feedback from your friends and your community. So it's really, it's really cool to just think about, okay, my community came here for me. They showed up for me and they helped me. And I hope that other people ask as well, ask for help. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I love to help people and trying to get into, you know, the PhD programs and trying to get, you know, into a career field, into a job, because so many people have helped me. I mean, I could call out a couple, um, Jonathan Benjamin Alvarado, Dr. Lourdes Gouveia, you know, Latino leaders who have, who have really taken an interest in making sure that the rest of us are able to come up with them. So they're putting that hand back to pull us up with them, which is, you know, incredible. I can't thank the two of them enough for the help that they've given me. Right. And it's priceless. You know, they can give you all of the, all of this help. And I've, my mentor has been Yolanda Nuncio. I've, you know, introduced her a couple of times here, but her love is unconditional. I fall flat on my face, but I used that, you know, she'll (laughs) she'll be like, it's okay, Gladys, we can try again, you know, and then just continue to go through it. And uh, it's just, I, I love the mentorship piece and I wish we could lift them up more. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wish they would get all of the roses, all of because they are so uh, they have changed us and therefore we're able to change uh, other people's you know lifestyles or however um, in our communities because that's mm-hmm. really what we're you know we're here for is to try to make better changes for our community so mm-hmm. very cool I know so now you're Dr. Athena Ramos and I have stayed with your education path but I want to talk mom to mom yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit <clears throat> mom to mom? Excuse me. How are you? So I know you have babies. I know you have, they're not babies, but yeah. you have a baby <laughs> and then you're married. Can yep. we talk a little bit about how that looks like when you're going to college and you have yeah. a family, how that looks like when you're currently changing the world and have a family? What does that look like for you? Yeah, well, I've got four young people. I call them my people. So I've got four (laughs) in my household. Um, One who is 18, one who's 16, uh, one who is nine, and one who is three. Um, So a lot of, of, you know, my journey I've done together with my 18-year-old and my 16-year-old. I uh, got married when I was really young. I was 21 years old. And I always tell people, I'm like, don't do that. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> trust me. Um, I can surely say, at least in my experience, 21 was way too young. It didn't work out. And so I ended up, you know, myself as a single mother with two young, young children to take care of. And I did that. I made it through um, uh, the master's in urban studies with you know, babies, literally babies um, at that time, which was really hard. And thank goodness for, you know, my community, for my mom, for my dad, because both of them really, really supported me a lot um, because they knew the importance of education. I mean, that's part of the reason why they stayed uh, and they wanted to be part of the United States was to give their kids a better opportunity than what they had. And so they wanted to make sure that I could do that. They were there. They are, they, my father passed. So he was, and my mother is very proud of, of, 
of everything that I've been able to achieve, but they're a big part of that success. Like my success isn't just me as me, Athena individual, but it really is the success of my family and of the, of my support system of my network. Um, so raising two, two young kids as a single mom, not easy. I really had no intention at that point to ever get into a relationship again. Um, I had in my mind, you know, that, you know, I'm just going to be a mom. I'm going to raise my two kids. I'm going to, you know, do everything I can to, to get us along a little bit further along than my parents had gotten me. Um, but I ran into somebody who's pretty amazing. Who's you know, and he accepted me uh, for who I am with all my faults, um, knowing that I have two children uh, and and like with unconditional love, which was something, like I said, never anticipated. Um, I, uh, you know, gosh, <laughs> you got me. Oh, no. <laughs> I can bring it back. You, you no, can go ahead. And it. <laughs> good. good. Um, but we've been married now for, for uh, the last uh, 11 years. We have two more children together. Uh, and he's been also like I was telling a, a group of ladies a couple of days ago, like he's my biggest supporter, because sometimes, you know, I think as Latinos, we're taught to be humble. Like you don't go share, you know, go tell everybody everything that you're doing. Like you just, you know, you just kind of go throughout your day and you do what you do and you do it to the best of your abilities. But you don't need to be blabbing your mouth to everybody about all the great stuff you do. Right. right. Um, but he's like the biggest supporter and biggest cheerleader. <laughs> the things that I'm doing, which is really, um, really awesome and really amazing. Uh, but without those support, well, without the, you know, my support systems, I think it would have been really, really tough. Uh, not impossible because I, I don't feel like I, I guess I don't see a lot of barriers, right? I take things on, uh, the way that I think about them as a, is a challenge. It's not a barrier because I can overcome things. Just might take me a little bit longer. It might make it a little bit more difficult, but I could surely do anything that I put my mind to. And I think that's one of the things that my my family also instilled in me is a sense of, of perseverance, a sense of of independence that you can't depend on anybody. Like you have to stand for yourself. And uh, you know, although you can fill your circle with people who you know are going to support you, you still have to be able to you know kind of do this. Uh, on your own. So they made sure, it, you know, in my father's words, <laughs> it's like, you better not have to depend on a man for anything. Like, you know, to have a partner is, is good, but you shouldn't have to depend on, on a partner for your livelihood, right? This is a partnership, not, not just a one-way relationship. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. I mean, can I just wrap up what you just said in the last yeah. two minutes, you know, and yeah. like put it all in a little package somewhere and send it to all the mujeres in the world. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> everything that you have said, I strongly believe. And I am so happy that they're hearing it from someone else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's hard. We're raised a certain way. We're raised como mujeres, you know, amable, you know, mm -hmm. listen to your husband, serve oh, your yes. husband. Yes. Y calladitas no more. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're, yeah. yeah, let's break that, break that up. And I'm so happy that you found somebody that supports you. I'm, I'm also blessed, lucky, and all of the above with my husband, Chris, who has supported me so far. And I was raised the same way, you know, I, well, 
maybe not not the same way because your dad sounds really badass. You know, like I can say that. I can say <laughs> That's that. Puerto Rican, you yeah. know, coming out right. <laughs> hey, boy, yes, yes. But you know, in my family, it was very you. You have to do this. You have to do this. You're a girl. You won't be able to do X. You won't be able. To, you know, and yep. the limitations were, you know, so constricting to me when I was growing up. So the. It, it's awesome to be able to hear a male uh, mentor, father figure, just telling you all of those things that you could accomplish. And you have, Athena, I mean, how beautiful is it, you know? And I'm going to start crying just because uh, you have done it. <laughs> you have done it so beautifully and it has been a challenge. But to me, you just define Courageous Mujer and you have done it so far. So Aww. super, super happy that you're able to share that with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I mean, what what a compliment. <laughs> Courageous Mohair. I love it. Yes. Well, I do want to shout out your kiddos. If you're able to and willing to, what are their names and then your partner? Yeah, well, my husband is Jose and my we'll start at the bottom. So we have Vinny, Italia, Nick and Johnny. Hey, hey, fam. <laughs> Hopefully they're watching. Um, well, again, let's go back. Your mom now changing the world. What yep. are you up to? Who are you, Dr. Athena Ramos? Yeah, gosh. Okay. Well, I am an assistant professor in the Department of Health Promotion, which is in the Center for Reducing Health Disparities at uh, UNMC, which is the University of Nebraska Medical Center. I've been here, uh, gosh, going on 15 years now. Um, but as a faculty member, well, since I finished my PhD program, so back in uh, 2018, I became an assistant professor. I've been doing all kinds of really cool, amazing work. I tell people that I feel so blessed to be part of this, in this institution because and and this college because you know health is so much broader than what you get at the doctor's office or at the hospital that's why i love public health because it's really about the community and about the social systems about the structures that are in place that give people opportunities and allow people to thrive or not mm -hmm. and again going back to the those you know those ideas around policies and around um politics i think those all play into the health of communities and the well-being of all the people and so like working here at the college is incredible and i've had the opportunity to work on a lot of really I say interesting and cool things. Other people like my kids, they're like, you're such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> but I really love it. I love waking up every day and knowing that my work makes a difference and it makes a difference in real people's lives, right? I love going to work and knowing that I'm going to be challenged, that there's always something more to do, that the work isn't going to end. Like, the field that I'm in, it isn't going to go away. And we're not going to get automated or replaced. Like there's so much thing, so many things that need to be done to help communities and to help people to really experience that highest level of health, which, you know, includes both physical, mental, and social well-being. It isn't just, a, you know, I don't have heart disease. Well, great. But there's so much more to healthy than than just that right and so some of the the things that i've been able to work on well lately i've been spending a lot of time on i would say three core areas and i feel that they're really intertwined um, the first would be farm worker health and safety so over the last uh 
six years. I've had um, some fun, actually 10 years, let me put it that way, 10 years, I've had funding uh, to do work on Latino immigrant farm worker health issues here in our state. We've conducted two studies of migrant farm worker health. I did a project with hog farm workers uh, in Missouri. And over the last six years, we've been working with cattle feedlot workers here in Nebraska and in Kansas. So trying to explore some of the, the health, safety, and well-being issues that they experience. I've also, that would, so that would be the first area, I would say. The second area uh, is really on uh, immigrant integration and community welcoming, and especially in rural places and small towns. So how do we create, you know, places where people feel like they're welcome, where they feel like they have an opportunity, where they feel like they're valued, like somebody sees them. And oftentimes, you know, rural communities, especially here in the Midwest, uh, they have traditionally been places of, you know, of German heritage, of Dutch heritage, Norwegian heritage. Uh, I mean, you name it, Czechs and Polish and so forth. Um, and now many of these small towns and rural places are changing dramatically, demographically. And so you have uh, a lot more Latino immigrants who are coming to these places and communities are struggling because there's a language issues, there's cultural differences. And, and so part of our work is to try to explore the immigrant perspective, but also the, the community resident perspective and how do we integrate those two perspectives to try to find some common solutions so that we can help grow these places. You know, everybody who lives in these places, in these small towns, in these rural areas, they want their community to thrive, right? And part of that means that we've got to keep people there. And if we don't have places that are open, that are, you know, welcoming, and that uh, give people these these chances, uh, I think we're going to see a lot of these smaller towns continue to maybe disappear or to lose a lot of population, lose a lot of their um, their history. So that would be uh, the second area. And then the third area over the last couple of years has been meatpacking um, health and safety. So even before COVID hit, um, I was part of a team that was doing a research study on meatpacking worker health. We were particularly interested in fatigue and pain because we know that people who work in the meatpacking industry experience a lot of repetitive motions. They're exposed to cold, to hot, to chemicals, to all kinds of stuff uh, in these facilities. And so we're trying to document um, some of those issues and then explore the, the concept of safety culture and what does that mean in terms of, of the meatpacking industry. Then COVID hit, right? <laughs> COVID hit and it, it had a really big impact, dramatic impact uh, on the meatpacking industry in Nebraska, but all across the world. So it wasn't even just a United States thing. It was all across the world. Um, and I was called by by folks here at the university at UNMC, but also by many of my community partners saying, you need to document these stories. You need to help us be able to tell these stories. And so we did. We did a study of meatpacking workers' experiences with, with COVID right as the pandemic hit. So thinking about May 2020 and documenting what are the things that were going on in the plants because the, the companies were saying, you know, X, Y, Z things are happening, but the workers and, and the worker advocates were saying, eh, 
maybe not so much. And so there was a real contradiction in what we were hearing versus what was out in the popular media. Um, and so we've been working on meatpacking and COVID issues ever since. So we documented uh, the employer actions at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, over the last nine months, we've been working on an exposure assessment, actually partnering with meatpacking facilities. So we've had teams that are going into the facilities taking air samples because we know COVID is, is transmitted in the air. Early on, there was a debate of whether it's a droplet transmission, which is why you have the plastic dividers in uh, a lot of retail outlets and, and so forth. And they even put them on the line. That was because uh, the thought was that COVID was transmitted through droplets. And it is, but it's also airborne. And so we've been taking uh, air samples in the plants. We've been looking at uh, ventilation uh, and airflow and, and looking at engineering opportunities to try to engineer out uh, or mitigate the risk of COVID transmission in the facilities. We've also been talking with occupational health nurses and again, documenting workers' perspectives and narratives in dealing with COVID. I was actually just in Texas a couple of weeks ago and I was chatting with some Latino women uh, one who had been in a coma because of COVID. She worked in a meatpacking facility. She had been in a coma. She, you know, everybody thought she was going to pass, uh, but she she survived and she's doing well. But she wanted to tell us her story. I, I sat with another Latina woman who uh, who worked in the meatpacking plant. Her husband had contracted COVID. He actually passed on. Um, so these are the types of stories, and and they're so impactful um, that we're trying to document. And now. We're actually moving into a third phase of the meatpacking project. And that's so, and we're actually, I'm going to ask for everybody's help here on the show. We're, we're going to be uh, doing a, a research study uh, of meatpacking workers' decision-making around getting tested and getting vaccinated. So we want to learn, like, what are the factors that influence uh, whether or not you get tested or whether or not you get vaccinated. And we'll be working in six Nebraska communities over the next year uh, to do so. We'll, we'll be in uh, Crete, you know, testing my memory here, <laughs> Hastings and Crete and Dakota City, South Sioux City area. We'll be in Fremont. We'll be in Omaha. And there's one more that is escaping my mind. But you get the idea. So we'll be all across the state. My team is ready. We want to talk to people. Um, and so we'll have a survey and we'll be doing some interviews both with workers and also with other community stakeholders to learn more about these things. So that's a little bit about what I've been up to. You can't see my wall here in my office, but I have a list of about 16 projects that I currently like work on right now. But those are the three big ones that are on my mind. And here's the point where I'm like, give me three more hours so then I can ask you <laughs> like one whole hour per category, please, you know, because it's so, so the depth of each subject or each piece that you're talking about is huge and the impact that it has in our community, just in my life. Let's just pack those three down in my life. Uh, my mom, by uh Farmer, <laughs> migrant worker, farm worker, mm -hmm. um, my dad, meatpacking plant worker. And then obviously I live in rural Nebraska. Inclusion and welcoming is like in my blood. I need to figure out how to make this happen. Not for me anymore. You know, like I, uh -huh. like you said, I own my power. I own who I am. I feel comfortable with my skin. I know my identity. I know where I stand and how I contribute to my community. But 
for my the kiddos, not right. only my kiddos, but all of the kids that are throughout the state that may not feel welcomed, do not feel empowered to, you know, to talk about mm-hmm. these issues or feel the racism, pero no saben how to communicate that. Um, I mean, all of those things that you're working on, plus the 13 more, <laughs> <laughs> have to, you know, impact us on an everyday basis. So kudos to you. I am, I'm super, I, again, Otra vez, we will have this various conversations. I hope you're you're willing to come back and just dig in into some of those very important topics that you've touched because they touched my life. And I can only imagine how much uh, other individuals that are listening and will listen are also impacted by the work that you do. Absolutely. I'd love to come back. You just let me know. Okay. Yay. I love to talk if you haven't noticed. <laughs> I love it. Hey, you're welcome here anytime. And like your husband says, we need to share it. We need to, you know, uplift our work. And if you don't, you know, then who's going to know, you know, and I, I, I hope that we celebrate, embrace and all, all of your work that you're doing, because it is very much impactful. I do have one more question. So you can can you may or may not be the only Latina in the room in very important meetings, you know, like in those meetings that they're questioning, maybe potentially asking, are you the right person to answer this? You know, uh, where they will question your credibility, where they will think twice before they ask you. If you're in a room where you know that you're advocating for a fact, uh, something that's happening within the Latino community, where do you dig up the courage and las ganas, you know, to speak up? Um, I spoke with Josie Rodriguez, as you know, you know her. She has career DHHS leader. She's been in rooms and I just can only imagine, you know, uh, the conversations that happen and um, where you find that courage. Where do you find your courage in situations where you may not feel welcomed in places where you don't think they're going to listen, but you still have to speak up? Can you share that with us? Yeah, that's that's a really good question and a really interesting question. Um, I was chatting with ladies a couple of days ago um, about a very similar feeling of kind of being an imposter. Like you're there, but you don't really belong and you question whether you're smart enough, whether you're the right person, if you have the best credentials and so forth. And some of the things that I do, I try to take a deep breath realize that sometimes the 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 feelings are just me like it's just me feeling this way questioning myself uh realize that sometimes it isn't just me but it is coming from a point of ignorance why they may be asking me certain things that maybe they just don't know so i try to give them the benefit of the doubt when they're asking me something where i'm like what <laughs> so um trying to do that and then you know I try to instill in myself that I'm an expert. If I'm getting invited to a meeting uh, or to a conversation, they want me there for a reason. And I'm an expert in my field. Uh, there's very few people that have the, the knowledge, I guess you could say, that I do about the certain topic areas that I work in. And so I try to say, well, Athena, you're the expert. Don't be afraid to speak up. Plus, I know that when I'm speaking, I'm also speaking for my community, for my people, 
And that's a great responsibility. And it's not one to be taken lightly. So when I say something, I try to make sure that it's grounded in fact or grounded in the experiences of the community. And it isn't just a, a me thing. Um, so those are some of the things that I do for me to get that courage is um, a lot of prep work. I also, I'm, I'm kind of like an over preparer, like I'll spend hours and hours and way more time than probably most people will preparing for certain types of things. And my family can attest to it because they'll see me up, you know, at two, three in the morning, still at the computer still thinking I might wake up early at four or five, still at the computer and still thinking. Um, but for me, this idea of being overprepared and having a lot of facts to support whatever it is that I'm going to present or argue the case that I'm going to argue is really important for allowing me um, the, the opportunity to feel like I know the content, like I really know it. And, um, I, you know, I was telling some folks, sometimes I'll even write out a whole script, Like I will write it literally word for word and I'll read it and I'll read it and I'll read it and it'll become kind of like a monologue in my own head so that I know where exactly where I'm going. But this over preparing is also part of building the confidence mm -hmm. to be able to share that story and to share it with, um, in the best light that I can. Right. Um, because I think sometimes as, Latinos, Latinas in our case, um, people look at you and they wonder, kind of like we wonder, and eh, maybe she doesn't really know what she's doing, or maybe they just invited her because they need to check the box because she's Latina or whatever it is. Um, and so being overprepared for me is one way to overcome that. And that resonates with me, but very much so with my little sister, Rose. She works for ACLU of Nebraska in a lot of policy work, you know, so yep. it's all intertwined together too. She has told me various times how much she prepares, but the counter, you know, like I got to prep for the counter questions because exactly. I don't, you never know. Yeah. 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 So if they say this and I say this, and mm -hmm. if they say this and I say this, uh, you know, you could even go back to like that high school experience of not having a plan B. Now I have a plan A, B, C, D, E. I've got a lot of plans when I go into something. <laughs> yes, we brought that full circle. I love that. <laughs> Too, too awesome. This is too great. I, I love it. I really wish we could have more conversation, more time and space. Uh, I do want to leave the, door, the floor open for you. Is there anything, any message that you would like to tell young Latinas that are in their career or they're in college or they're just in high school trying to figure their life out? Any, mm -hmm. any, any thoughts for them? Yeah, um, I guess one of the things that I would say is don't be afraid of the journey. I know people tell us, you know, that you got to get from point A to point B and you got to go as fast as you can and you got to go as directly as you can. Um, but I would, you know, looking back on my own life, I pushed and pushed and pushed myself to move as fast and as directly as I could. But sometimes that means that you're missing out on some of the best parts of life. Um, and so I would say, you know, be concerned about the journey, but it is the journey that is that whole experience. It's not just the, the direct line. And so take time to breathe. Take time to enjoy a good book for fun. Take time to watch a sunrise. You know, life isn't always about work. 
I was having a, a great conversation with uh, with an ethnographer friend of mine uh, a few weeks ago. And like I said, I've been working on cattle feedlots and doing some research on cattle feedlots. And so I was talking about like this metaphor that came to my mind uh, about the cowboy and the workhorse. And, you know, I've spent most of my life being a workhorse push and push and push and push and you work and you work and you work. And I think that's the story that many of our families experience, right? But at some point, we've got to be the cowboy and be able to direct our own life and be able to direct how we do the work that we choose to do. And and so that was a reflection on my own life and something that I think over the next few months or a few years that I want to work more on is, is figuring out how to how to take more time to, to be really more reflective and more thoughtful um, and be able to direct my time in the ways that are going to be most meaningful to my journey. Right. Yes. Yes. I love that. Thank you. You know, I never thought of it that way. I I'm picturing though, the imagery you just posted or UNMC just posted a, a picture for Latino men on um, their horses. Yes. And I was like, yes, you know, like, yes, Powerful imagery. Yes, <laughs> I'm telling you, I saw it. I'm like, I love the imagery of that. It was the most powerful, assertive, you know, and just now how you you have mentioned how to look at life. I mean, it just makes sense. Well, but I mean, it makes 100% sense. And I thank you. I thank you for those beautiful words. I celebrate you. I embrace you. I'm so happy that Nebraska has you. And hopefully, nunca, you know, don't move away. <laughs> the grass is not greener. Stay here. Uh, and then I just I just want to thank you so much for your time and thank again our sponsors and everybody that listened in um, and we'll continue to listen in here in our podcast so thank you again thank you so much Gladys for the opportunity and for all of you listening thank you so much please feel free to reach out to me I'm at a ramos at unmc.edu if you have any questions about higher education about looking for somebody to you know tell you to give you a little bit more direction on on some opportunities please reach out to me i'll be a resource for you i want to put my hand back and pull more people up with me beautiful well we'll be here next week with cheryl mora james from lincoln and hasta la próxima again you can find courageous mujer podcast at spotify apple podcast and anchor i'm your host gladys colinas y hasta la próxima